0: We are continuing our study in the book of Exodus. I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning and uh, uh, your sermon uh, notebooks. Uh, Again, if you're relatively new to New Life and you would like uh, a sermon notebook to keep notes on the sermons, uh, we have them available in the lobby. They're free uh, to take. So on the way out, uh, go ahead and grab it. Or if you'd like, run out there now and grab it and come on back. But we uh, are going to be in chapter four this morning. And to kind of set the tone for for where we're going, I recalled a quotation from Benjamin Franklin, who said once that he that is good for making excuses um, is seldom good for anything else. (laughs) Um, And uh, a lot of truth to that. Now Franklin wasn't speaking about people with legitimate excuses. Uh, There there are uh, legitimate excuses, that, um, that oftentimes we, we, we use, we give to justify a particular course of action or, or lack of action. But what he was really referring to was people who make up excuses. You know, people who, who make up excuses in order to get out of doing something or to get their way or whatever it might be. And uh, people do that all, all of the time, don't they? You know, you probably remember the old, you know, uh, child excuse, you know, the dog ate my homework kind of thing. Um, but we make excuses from wanting to get out of school, get out of work, um, or get out of speeding tickets, right. Now, I've taken the time to compile a list of 12 common excuses that you may be familiar with, along with a couple that you might not have heard before. So let me just list them off to you. I'm not feeling well. Or my kid is sick. I had a family emergency. My basement is flooded. Uh, I knew one guy who who gave that excuse so he could avoid going to work. The only problem was he lived in a mobile home. Uh, I had family come in from out of town unexpectedly. I had a doctor's appointment I forgot about. I lost my keys. I like this one. I spilled coffee on my clothes, and all my other clothes are in the wash. I have a flat tire or my car won't start. I was stuck in traffic and ran out of gas. I couldn't find anyone to watch my dog, my cat, or my goldfish. I had to finish watching a movie because I only had 24 hours left to watch it and I didn't want to have to rent it again. (laughs) I I really like this one. I I was busy stockpiling my bunker for the end of the world. There are a lot of reasons why we make excuses sometimes sometimes we make excuses because we can't accept defeat or failure. Sometimes you hear a lot of athletes you know doing that. Sometimes we do it to get out of doing something that we don't want to do. Maybe we make excuses because we fear disappointing someone um, or We fear suffering the consequences of our actions or inaction. And sometimes we do it simply because we want to avoid venturing out of our comfort zones. At the end of the day, we make excuses because we're all fallen creatures. We all struggle with sin and guilt and shame. And Moses was no exception to this. Again, I know when we think of Moses, we we envision this great man of faith, but he was very much like us. If you recall in chapter three, Moses began to make excuses for why he uh, was not the man to go back to his people or to go to Pharaoh. And objection number one, uh, I don't know if you remember, but he, he basically says, who am I? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Do you remember what God's response was? I will be with you. Doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. His second objection was, who are you? Who are you, Lord? If they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? Remember God's response there? I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And here in chapter four, Moses continues to make excuses in the hopes of getting out of the mission that God has called him to. And what's interesting is that despite divine assurances and miraculous powers to authenticate him as God's messenger, he remains a disbelieving and reluctant prophet. You know, when we think of of reluctant prophets, we usually think of Jonah, you know? But Moses falls into this category and he ends up provoking the Lord to anger. So this morning as we look at Moses' objections and God's responses to them, uh, we're gonna learn that when it comes to serving God, you don't make excuses, you just trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning and for your word to us. Uh, We do thank you for your servant Moses and the things that we learn uh, from his life. Uh, And Lord, we thank you that he is a picture or a type of Christ, uh, the great savior to come. And so Lord, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to us here this morning, even as we look at the life of Moses. And uh, Lord, that we would see um, that, uh, that you are greater than all our sin. You are greater than our disbelief and that you desire to use us for your glory and for the good of others. Holy Spirit, be our teacher here this morning, I pray. Amen. So after God tells Moses in, in chapter three that he is going to strike Egypt with all his wonders... And then as his people depart the land of Egypt, they're going to plunder the Egyptians and come out with great wealth. Moses then answers God with his third objection, our first of the day, but his third objection or excuse, and it's found there in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, the ESV renders this as a statement. Do you notice that? It says, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say this. Other translations actually render it as, as, as a question. Question. For instance, in the New American Standard, it says, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? The NIV 84 says, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? And the New King James says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Uh, regardless of the translation you use the, the, the point is the same. It, it, Moses is, is making another excuse. He's giving another reason, another objection for why God's got the wrong man. And Moses' excuse here was born out of fear of rejection. He, it was born out of, out of the fear of personal rejection. I think something we can all relate to. He was fearful that the people would not believe him. Specifically, they would not believe his call and his mission. They would not believe that the Lord had really appeared to him. Notice he says there, he says that the Lord has not appeared to you. And, and he was afraid that they would believe that, that his message was not of God, that it was his, of his own doing. Now, a prophet of God, or for that matter, any servant of the Lord, cannot afford to shrink back from God's call upon his life because they fear what other people think. They can't afford to be man-pleasers. This is one of the challenges that preachers face every time they, they step into the pulpit, is do I... Give people God's word as, as best as I understand it? Or, or do I coddle people? Do we as, as, as preachers cowtail to the wants and the needs of, of the people? And, you know, I think the New Testament makes it, you know, very clear that if, if we were the servant of men, we would not be the servant of God that we should not be about tickling people's ears and telling them what they want to hear, but rather we need to tell them what they need to hear, what God wants them to hear. That's the role of a prophet, that's the role of a pastor, a preacher. God's messengers must faithfully proclaim the message God has given them, and that will never happen unless they are convinced that they are sent by God and that God is able to do what he says he's going to do. You're not convinced of either one of those two things. You have no business standing up in front of a group of people and proclaiming God's word. Last week, I told you to remember what God said in verse 18 of chapter three. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. God told Moses that the people would listen to him. See, this is important to remember here as we look at chapter 4. God had told him, Moses, they'll listen to you. And here we are in chapter 4, and he's whining that they won't believe him. Moses Moses feared rejection. Why? Because he had an unbelieving heart. If he had believed God's, what God had told him, he wouldn't be raising this objection, this question. He was still wrestling with God's call upon his life, and he continues to make excuses because he is not yet fully surrendered. He's still holding on. What's he holding on to? I don't know. It may be comfort. It may be security. It might be, hey, 40 years, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at the shepherding stuff. Uh, I've settled down here in, in Midian. I really don't want to go back to, to Egypt. So what was God's response? Well, let's look at it. God graciously responds to Moses' objection by giving him three signs to validate him as his messenger. Uh, the way that I like to remember this is using three words, staff, hand, or water, uh, or if you prefer a snake, leprosy, and blood because these are the three signs. Verse two, it says, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, throughout the Bible, God uses signs to do several things. He he uses signs to demonstrate his power and his sovereignty that he alone is God. He uses signs to validate his messengers and their message message. And he also does it to strengthen the faith of his people and to instill within them confidence in him. He does it to foster repentance and faith. And he also does it to serve as a warning to those who would defy him and his will. So the first sign that God gives Moses here is that of a staff that turns into a snake. Um... As, as soon as I was reading this, my mind automatically went to Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember that scene where Indiana Jones is looking down into the hole into the tomb? He throws down the the the, the torch or whatever it is and it lights up and you see all these snakes. And then the camera zooms on him and he, and he says this, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? You know, remember that scene? And then, was it, Philip Rise Davies, his buddy there next to him, he goes, asps, very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are two miracles here. The first miracle was that Moses' staff became a living, breathing serpent. The second was that Moses grabbed it by its tail and it became a wooden staff again. Now, I've never held a snake. I don't want to hold a snake. <laughs> Uh, I hate snakes, but there's one thing I know is you're not supposed to pick them up by the tail, and especially if they're venomous, and no doubt this one was. And how, do you, how do you know that, Paul? Well, number one, you're in Egypt, probably a cobra, you know, an asp, you know, something, but Moses ran from it, so he was scared of it. I figured he knows something we don't hear. So the question then is why did God use this as a sign? Well, I believe it's because this particular sign spoke to God's power and sovereignty over Pharaoh and over all of Egypt. You know, here in the United States, we have a symbol that represents our country. It's the bald eagle. You know the bald eagle kind of represents the United States. There's a there's a sense of majesty and and um, uh, power and freedom. I mean, all sorts of character traits that could be astri- ascribed to, to to the eagle. But uh, other countries like Russia have the bear. Well, Egypt had a snake. The snake was their symbol of authority and power. And Pharaoh even had. The snake, an emblem of a snake, on his crown. And um, and as I was thinking about this, um, I, I was remembering back, and I was able to pull it out. But uh, a young lady who was in my uh, youth group many years ago uh, was Egyptian. She uh, became a believer, and as a present, she gave to me. Um, an oil painting. I think it's an oil, oil painting on actual papyrus. And there's a picture of it we can put up on screen. And you can see the snake up there at the top of his crown that, that he's wearing. Now, I don't know what pharaoh this is, whatever, but if you'd like to take a look at and see what literal papyrus looks like after service, come on up and I'll, I'll show it to you. But he wore that symbolizing his authority over the people. So God was demonstrating his power and authority over Pharaoh in Egypt by taking a staff and turning it into a serpent and then taking a serpent and turning it back into a staff. It's a picture of his sovereignty and his dominion over all of the nations. Now, this sign will take on greater significance um, a a little bit later in our story, but you're going to have to wait for that. The second sign that he gives them is a hand that turns leprous. Verse six says, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside of his cloak and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe because of the latter sign. This sign too was a symbol of God's power. This time over sickness and disease, life and death. Now, leprosy uh, is also known as Hansen's disease. It's a terrible disease. It's a chronic infectious disease that affects the nerves, uh, the skin, the eyes, the upper respiratory tract. It was one of the most feared diseases in the ancient world. And it was a disease then with no cure, and it was believed to be very contagious. And as a result of that, the people were made to live in isolation. They were made to dress in a certain way, to wear their hair in a certain way. They were made to shout unclean whenever they came near anyone who didn't have leprosy. Alfred Edersheim, uh, the famous Jewish scholar, cultural expert, said this about the disease. He says, the disease that we call leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon, the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings, so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. His throat becomes hoarse, and now you can not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your own mouth, probably due to the odor. And one of the most, you know, um, terrible things about it is because you lose feeling in, in your extremities, it's very easy um, to injure yourself. You know You can imagine yourself running, and all of a sudden you, you stub your, your, your toe against a, a jagged rock. You don't feel it. You know? I mean, I think today, if that was the case and you're, you know, peeling tomatoes or or not tomatoes, but potatoes, you know, you could shave off one of your your fingers because you don't feel it. Or maybe back then you're cooking fish over a hot fire and you don't realize your hand's on fire and burning off. And that's why there was so much deformity with people that that had leprosy. So God here is demonstrating his power over this dreaded disease. And then there's a beautiful story in the New Testament that that tells us about a man who had leprosy. In Luke chapter five, starting in verse 12, it says, in one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. Must be pretty bad. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And Jesus reached out and touched him, something that nobody else would do. And he said, I am willing, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Now, leprosy is mentioned about 40 times in the Bible, and many times it is a picture of sin. It's used as a picture or a symbol of sin. Sin, like leprosy, is a disease from within that manifests itself outwardly. It, too, causes pain and results and separation from God and from others. And like leprosy, sin leads to death. Only worse, it leads to eternal separation from God for all of eternity. You see, our sin problem is far worse than leprosy. But just as God has power over leprosy, he has power over sin. That's the good news. Moses understands that God has the power to heal. Jesus had the power to heal physically, but he also has the power to heal us spiritually from our sin sickness. That's the whole reason why Jesus came, was to deliver us from our sin. That he went to the cross, he lived a perfect life. Then he went to the cross and he died in our place, taking our sin in his body. And when he was nailed on the cross, he was being punished, not for his sin, but for ours. And then in the great exchange, God gives us his righteousness in lieu of our filthy robes or rags of righteousness. He took our sin upon himself so that we would become the righteousness of God. So that anyone who is willing to turn from their sin and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them from their sin will be saved. And God promises to send his Holy Spirit to indwell the person who turns to Christ in faith. I hope you've done that. If, if not, I, I urge you to bend your knee to King Jesus. He died for you because he loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And he wants to empower you for his service. The third sign that we see here that he gives to Moses is water that turns to blood. Verse 9 says if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The Nile river was the lifeblood of, of Egypt; it provided water for drinking, it provided water for agriculture, for bathing. It it was, in many ways, it was the source of life for all of Egypt. And by turning water into blood, specifically water from the Nile into blood, God was demonstrating his power over creation. He was demonstrating his power over the elements, his power over life and death. And he was also pointing out that he himself is the ultimate source of life. Again, now this is a precursor to an even greater display of power later on in our story. Now we come to objection number four, number two for us this morning. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. What did Moses mean by this? Maybe he meant he was not skillful with words. That his speech wasn't powerful or persuasive. Maybe he he was saying, I have a problem speaking. I have a speech impediment. Maybe he stuttered. Most likely, I think this was just another excuse. Now, someone in my life group um, this past week mentioned that, well, after 40 years of talking to sheep, maybe he didn't know how to speak human. <laughs> um, but then, but, but you, then you have to notice that he wasn't very good with words before he was tending sheep, Right? What's he say? I, I, he says, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. And it's interesting, too, that in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, we read, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Hmm, interesting. Well, in any event, God doesn't buy the excuse. God's response begins in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, Moses's excuses doesn't cut it anymore with God. He, he, he's tired of it. He's done with it. Yet here again is another opportunity for God to display his power in Moses' weakness. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, "'When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified.'" And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, guess what? God made your mouth too. You don't have to be eloquent in speech, you don't have to be powerfully persuasive, but you do have to trust and obey. We need to stop making excuses for not sharing the gospel with people. And I'm not saying that we, go, you know, we actually verbalize our excuses, but we, we know we can trust God. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And then in Luke chapter 12, it says, and when they bring you before the synagogues, And and by the way, that that assumes that you're living your life in such a way that you're perceived to be a threat to the powers that be. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So God is telling Moses, again, it doesn't matter, Moses. Moses. Whether you feel competent, capable, or not, I will be with you. I will will tell you what you ought to say. His last objection, number five, number three for us, is in verse 13. Now earlier, when God called Moses by name, remember Moses' response, here I am, that, Coupled with verse 13, reminds me of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, where he, he has this vision, he sees the Lord high and lofty, sitting on a throne, you know, and all the angels are attending to him. And he, it's an amazing encounter with God. And he hears God cry out, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And how does Isaiah respond? Here I am, send me. Here, Moses has a similarly glorious encounter with God, but his response is more like, here I am, send someone else. <laughs> Notice this objection doesn't come in the form of a question. You see, Moses is out of excuses. He, he now has come face to face with the truth and he has to admit it. I don't wanna go. God, I don't want to go god i do not want to go. So he begs God to send somebody else. This is not a flattering picture of Moses. He refuses to go. He refuses to be God's messenger and to take God's message of salvation to his own people. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how scared, insecure, and faithless do you have to be to say no to God? How self centered and comfort driven, do you have to be to not help your own people? How can he say no after everything that God has done for him? God appeared to him in a burning bush, he called him by name, he promised to be with him, he revealed his personal name to him, he performed two miracles and promised a third, and then after putting up with all of his feeble excuses, he accommodates Moses by appointing Aaron to come alongside and help him, which we'll see here in a minute. How could Moses say no? Now, before we get too hard on Moses, are we not guilty of the same thing? God may not have asked us to deliver two million people out of slavery, but are we not called to proclaim the gospel of God to those who need to hear? Are we not called to be his witnesses and to make disciples? Has he not called us to be in community and to love and serve one another? Are we not called to pray without ceasing, to live holy lives to support the work of God? Are we not called to expose the fruitful deeds of darkness? How are we doing with all that? How are you doing? How am I doing? Are you making excuses? What are they? Well, they, they're many. I don't have enough time. I'm too busy. I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't have the spiritual gift of fill in the blank. I'm an introvert. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a teacher. I don't know enough Bible. I don't know how to share the gospel. I witness by my life, I give in other ways. I don't like those people. Oh, pastor, you don't know what he's like, (laughs) what he has done to me. I I don't know how to forgive him. The, The excuses are endless, aren't they? How does God feel about our excuses? I think he feels the same way he felt about Moses' excuses. Look at it there in verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. So what was God's response? It was righteous anger. Moses angered God with his unbelief, with his stubborn refusal to obey. God is done with Moses' arguments, and he shuts him down there's no more objections, no more questions. There's no 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 more uh, excuses. God gets the last word here, and and the thing is, is even though God is angry with Moses, do you notice how incredibly merciful He is to him? First of all, He doesn't strike him dead. That was the first act of mercy. The second is is that. He still wants Moses to go and proclaim deliverance to the people of Israel. And then, I mean, I mean that in itself, I mean, just, he, he, you still want me, God? Remember, a couple of weeks ago, God's not through with you yet. Wasn't through with Moses, he's not through with us. But then he, he goes a step further and, and he accommodates Moses' weakness and disbelief and appoints Aaron to help him. It's so encouraging to me, but it's also sad, isn't it? Because there are consequences to unbelief and to stiff-arming God. Moses' stubborn refusal to obey cost him the privilege of being God's spokesman to the people. Now Aaron's going to take that job on. And, and, and it's very possible that Moses also lost out on the privilege of becoming the very first priest for the people. How sad. And, and I think we need to take this to heart when we think about, when we make our excuses before God. What are we losing out on? If we want God's blessing and the privilege of fulfilling the purposes for which we were created. We need to stop making excuses and we need to learn to trust and obey. The good news is, is that God calls and graciously uses imperfect people. God doesn't use us because we're perfect vessels. He uses imperfect vessels to demonstrate his strength and his power. That's why Paul writes in Second Corinthians. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you've not yet surrendered your, your life to Christ, I implore you, do it today your excuses aren't gonna cut it with God. You're not gonna leave this world and stand before him and, and list off a litany of excuses as to why you didn't receive Christ as Lord and Savior in this life. And nobody in this room and nobody watching on, on television here is, it can ever say, I didn't hear. I didn't know. We will all be without excuse. So today is the acceptable day of salvation. And if you are a Christ follower, I I simply exhort you, step out in faith. Dare to trust and believe God. Take him at his word. Trust him for the results. I challenge you to share the gospel with at least one person this week Be intentional about it. Mark it on your calendar. Remind yourself each day, I I need to look for an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, to get into a spiritual conversation with somebody. And then after you do that, tell somebody else about it so you can encourage them. And if you're not in a life group, I encourage you, visit one this week. We'd love to have you join us. Talk to me after the service. I'd love to help you connect. If you're not yet serving within the church, I I would encourage you, find a place of service. Again, I would love to help you. Are you giving as God would have you give? If not, trust him to provide for you. And then step out on faith and be a, a generous, cheerful giver, supporting the work of the Lord. I think Ben Franklin was right when he said that he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. So when it comes to serving God, let's stop making excuses and let's just learn to trust and obey. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word to us and the hope um, that we have in it. And Lord, we thank you um, that you not only have the power over sickness and disease and life and death, but Lord, that you have the power to save our souls from sin and from eternal separation from you for all of eternity. Lord, it's my prayer that there wouldn't be a single person in the hearing of my words this morning that would fall short of your heaven and your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.